When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We have to explore ways to put pressure on Muslim countries to sanction Israel. Cut the oil lines, cut the gas lines, not just with Israel, but with the United States as well. So she's been looking into Islam for years. I said, what did it for you? Without hesitation, she said Palestine. Do you feel that an Islamic golden age is still possible for this ummah? Do you want an honest answer or do you want a preacher's answer? I want your honest answer. We're not doing enough. I think that we have to start thinking about disruption, the weapons manufacturers. American Muslims tend to look inwards and think about their own interests and forget about the ummah at large. Some of the most forgotten people right now in our ummah are our Syrian brothers and sisters. Yeah. But if you get a Muslim in there and they can't speak the truth, we don't want them there. People in power have to know that you cannot undertake this type of a destructive course of action yeah. and still get the Muslim vote and not be penalized. Has Gaza taught us that the Muslim Ummah is on a path to decline? Our numbers, our money, our resources have failed to give us any leverage as the carnage continues without interruption. My guest today is a well-known Islamic scholar, Sheikh Dr. Omar Suleiman. Today, I would like to discuss the Gaza crisis from two perspectives, the contemporary and from the angle of the seerah. In the long durée of Islamic history, we often lose sight that every generation, even the best generation, that of the companions, had deep challenges to overcome. Our enemies have continuously worked to undermine our unity, and it is often the hard lessons of these challenges that help us overcome our petty disputes and territorial differences. Today, I want to focus on the notion of unity and its real implications. If we agree that the lack of Muslim unity is holding us back, how do we overcome this challenge? Are we sliding into further decline? Is the Muslim Ummah a Rome or a China? Are we destined for defeat, as one author put it, or can revival, a term that provoked many thinkers in the 20th century, can revival be realised again? Dr. Omar Suleiman, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and welcome back. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullah, first time in person, though. 
Alhamdulillah, Rabbil, it's really yeah, great to see you and have you with us. I appreciate it. I remember, subhanAllah, I think last time you had me was the earthquake. That's right. So, That's right. Alhamdulillah, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continue to um, allow us to find perspective and clarity in the midst of these devastating moments and send his rahmah upon this ummah. Ameen, Ameen, Jazakallah khair. Well, we are speaking at a time of another great challenge, a catastrophe for the Muslim ummah, that of the I don't know what to call it, but Gaza slaughter, I suppose, is, is the only way to describe what's happening. Now, we have failed as an ummah, it seems, to mount a unified approach to this problem of Gaza. Why has the Muslim world so comprehensively failed at the most darkest moment? So I don't think that you can say that the ummah functions as one structure, and that's probably part of the problem. Mm. I think that we can certainly say that the uh, governmental response you know, by and large has been a failure, that we have gotten at best rhetoric uh, from certain Muslim um, nations. And of course, you know, certain actions, um, you know, that have been taken, legitimate actions, but they're, they're not from the countries where you would expect uh, the, most, the most support and frankly that have what appears to be leverage to be able to actually slow this down, to be able to hinder... Uh, not just the ability of Israel to carry out this genocide, but of the United States to carry out this genocide, to enable it at every front. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the ummah itself, the people themselves, uh, are actually coming back to a sense of original purpose. I'm more encouraged when I go to the streets of the Muslim world than when I roam the streets of any other part of the world. You know, I went to Jordan, I went to Qatar, um, you know, subhanAllah, seeing the response from the streets is incredible. Mm. Now, of course, in some countries, it's not possible to protest publicly. It's not possible to express your solidarity with Palestine publicly, and that's disheartening. Mm. But I've even had people that are in those countries reach out privately, even tell me privately that, you know, Jazakallah khair, we wish we could say more. We're crying, we're devastated, we're donating, but we're afraid of our government. So I think our governmental uh, response, by and large, has been failure. Uh, charity is a sloppy excuse for detrimental policy. Some mm-hmm. of the same countries that allocate some charity uh, to the Palestinians are very much so responsible for the slaughter of the Palestinians in the first place. And so this is a means of them saving face. But I do think at the same time, and this is the conundrum, that's sometimes the only solidarity that the populations can express. Mm-hmm. And so you'll find that in any country where people can donate towards Gaza, any country, any Muslim country, I mean, the people are pouring their hearts out. Mm-hmm. I don't think our ummah has failed. I think that the people in power within our ummah have deeply disappointed us And this is an extension of the betrayal of the Palestinian people. Look, the Abraham Accords were expanding. Palestinian cause was becoming a forgotten cause. And there were those that were trying to make sure that the Ummah forgot it. And this has revived, I think, in the hearts of Muslims, especially from a younger generation that didn't live through the past two intifadas the meaning of the Palestinian cause and how central it is to Islam as a whole. So I still believe in our ummah. I still believe we have a beautiful ummah. I still believe that anywhere we look through the ummah, 
no matter who's in power, whether they live in the West or the East, the Ummah is alive and the Palestinian cause is alive in their hearts. Absolutely. Um, I've been to some events where a preacher or a speaker would suggest that the reason why Gaza is in the situation it's in is because collectively we as an Ummah are not worthy of victory or somehow we have a poverty of Islam within us. There is a there is a a problem with us. Um, would you subscribe to that? And does that have any um, I don't know precedence in in Islamic Islamic history or Islamic text? The Prophet always encouraged us to be introspective and to look within. And so, if you were in Gaza right now, um, depending on what part of Gaza you are in, and depending on what stage of the genocide uh, we are in. Um, some of these words will even come from the khutbah there, the people giving khutbah there, that look, we have to come back, we have to renew ourselves, we were better at some point, and let's connect back to Allah, connect to the Qur'an. But it's not done in a way of shaming, nor in a way of saying, you deserve the genocide. Right. It's done as a means of saying, rightly so, that there's only goodness found in reconnecting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and there's only hardship found in disconnecting from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even if that hardship is embellished with all sorts of material success and advancement. Some of the Muslim nations that are advancing in the material sense are of the most miserable nations and disconnected from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they've ever been. And Allah knows uh, what He will do with them and when and how. But there's only goodness to be found in connecting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's only hardship to be found in disconnecting from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What we don't do is we don't reserve the blame to a location so we don't say ahil ghazza sin therefore this punishment is descending on the people of ghazza they are the best of this ummah they are the awe and inspiration uh to the entire ummah by the way to even the palestinians the rest of the palestinians look at the people of ghazza and say subhanallah what is it about you you know for many of us our family split with um you know a refugee population that went to ghazza and that settled and became ahil ghazza yeah. They're just made differently. They're 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 engineered differently. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has done something special with those people. Yeah. So it would be wrong to reserve it to that locality and say this part of the Ummah is suffering uh, because of what they did, yeah. and deeply un-Islamic, right? Because then you would, for example, suggest that the Prophet ﷺ suffered in Uhud because of something the Prophet ﷺ did. The Prophet ﷺ's teeth were knocked out. He bled almost to death. He had to be carried, ﷺ. Hamza ﷺ was martyred. Musab ﷺ was martyred. There were 300 people that left the army before Uhud even started. None of them were killed. They left unharmed. Yes. And some of the best companions were killed on the day of Uhud. The 40 that came down from the mountain... 40 of the 50 archers that were told to hold their place, the 40 that came down. They were not munafiqeen, they weren't hypocrites. See, subhanAllah, this is the the nuance that is often missing in the seerah. The hypocrites already abandoned ship. They left before the battle started. These were 40 men that got weak in a moment and came down from the the mountain thinking that the battle was over. Mm -hmm. The whole ummah suffered because you could make the argument that strategically had they held their position then Khalid radiallahu anhu who was on the opposing side would not have been able to penetrate in this way and exploit and so on and so forth but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed it for a reason and it was khair the Prophet did not shame those 40 do you know the names of those 40 I don't know the names of those 40 we don't know who they are who the 40 are 
Yeah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed their forgiveness and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded the Prophet to re-induct them, keep them in the community. Can you imagine if you lost your brother, you lost your sister, your father yeah. in battle and you're praying next to someone who left their position? We don't have a single incident of a brawl that happened in the masjid of the Prophet in the year after because someone said, if it wasn't for you, my dad would not have been killed. Because there was an understanding that even when these things have a traceable, consequential decision, we do not believe that that would have changed the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the decree of Allah is always good if we heed the lessons. And so instead of thinking about why this happened to them, and why them, and why them in particular, and why that location, and you know, what does this mean for the rest of us? Instead, we say there's only goodness in connecting to Allah and there's only hardship found in disconnecting from Allah. And certainly, you know, we actually charge ourselves. The introspective thinking Muslim, the introspective mm. thinking Muslim will instead look at themselves and say, are my sins a source of hardship for the rest of the ummah? Instead of looking at them and saying, I wonder what someone else did. It's like, subhanAllah, what... Uh, what I always tell people, if I give a khutbah on nifaq, on hypocrisy, and you're looking around and saying, that guy better be listening because he fits four traits, mm -hmm. you're totally missing the point of the khutbah. When the Prophet used to talk about nifaq, the loudest cries came from Umar ibn al-Khattab and people like Hanbala. The hypocrites were, you know, like, I hope no one notices that, that you know, he's talking about me. When we talk about a, 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 you know, a subject like hasad, envy, and these horrible spiritual diseases, are we talking about protecting ourselves from the effect of them? Or are we talking about protecting ourselves from being guilty of having them in our own heart? Likewise, when we talk about the hardship that comes on the ummah and how sins bring hardship, the believer should look at themselves and say, you know, every believer should look at themselves and say that, am I complicit? Because if the ummah is like one body, not only do I feel the pain of one part of the body that's being hurt. I ask myself if I'm causing pain to the body, uh, is my weakness a source of pain for the body? So this is a chance to bring people back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now from the hikmah of the Prophet certain people can talk to their own in ways that others can't. Mm. And that's this is where you have to let those who have the proper balance of wisdom and can bring people back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, let them do their job. So for example, Palestinians in diaspora can have certain conversations that are unbefitting of others to lecture them on mm. and to say, listen, you know, to that brother, that sister, that's Palestinian that has left their connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Oh, my dear brother, you know, it's wonderful that you're protesting alhamdulillah and that you're connecting back to your cause and you haven't completely forgotten where you came from. But look at the purity of your business. Look at the purity of your wealth. Come back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, this is our, our people need to come back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's a certain conversation that Palestinians in diaspora can have, the way that the people of Gaza can have conversations amongst themselves. And the Muslims can have general conversations about the importance of connecting back to Allah and that this is a time for the ummah to reconnect to Allah. The same way after an earthquake or a natural disaster. Hmm. Connect back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but do not blame a particular group of the ummah. Instead, you know, push the entire ummah to a connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because only khair comes from that connection. And we, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that 
this be a moment where we come back to Allah. I know, you know, we talk about people that are becoming Muslim because of Gaza. Yes. I can't tell you how many. Many. Every single week. We just gave Shahada to like seven people. Mashallah. Backstage at the Light Upon Light conference. That's just today. That's not including the people that took Shahada over the uh, the last uh, a few events. And one sister, I explicitly said to her, she came with her daughter. Imagine, subhanAllah, her daughter has been Muslim for years, married to a Muslim. Hmm. So she's been looking into Islam for years. I said, what did it for you? Without hesitation, she said, Palestine. Like it was quick, yes. subhanAllah, Palestine. So having a Muslim daughter all these years hmm. did not bring her to that final step. But seeing the people of Palestine, seeing the people of Gaza brought her to that. And I'm seeing many young Muslims, alhamdulillah, that are coming back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, at every level, at every single layer. I, I did a um, program with uh, Dr. Haifa Yunus. Mm-hmm. We were talking about this, you know, and some it was an observation, subhanAllah, my mother-in-law actually made. She said, subhanAllah, have you seen a better hijab than the hijab of Ahl Ghazza? Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? So like you see young girls. I know young girls that started wearing hijab. Yes. Because they're looking at these women, right? And they're like, wow, you know? I know young men that are regaining the ability to show their Islam in public, that are gaining a sense of courage because they're directly learning from the courage there. I had a young man, 17 years old, who's actually from Gaza. His parents are from Gaza. And he told me, he said, I just started praying five times a day because I was ashamed of myself. These are my cousins and they're praying under the airstrikes. Who am I to not pray in, in my comfort. So alhamdulillah, people are coming back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Dr. Omar Sulaiman, um, we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees victory and it's only in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's hands. If someone asks you, why hasn't the victory of Allah come yet? How would you answer them? So this was actually, subhanAllah, um, lecture that I just gave. Mm. Where is Allah when the Ummah is hurting? And I spoke about not to re-give the lecture at all. So just I spoke about in particular though, you know, we read Surah Al-Feed where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala immediately destroyed Abraha when he was seeking to attack the Kaaba. Yeah. In supernatural ways. And there wasn't a Muslim in front of the Kaaba. But then we also see 400 years later, less than 400 years later, a 24-year-old kid destroyed the Kaaba and killed 20,000 Hajjaj and stole the black stone and shouted out in front of the Kaaba, in front of everyone, where are the stones? Yes. Where are the birds? Yeah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spared him until Allah had killed him and then brought the ummah back after that. If I was one of those 20,000 hujjaj, what's going through my head? Like this kid is literally challenging Allah in front of the Kaaba. And nothing happened at the moment. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not just have wisdoms for who he lets maintain a temporary hold or a temporary victory. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a wisdom for every single minute that he allows it to last. This is what distinguishes us as Muslims. Allah has chosen some people to be shuhada. I've lost people I love. I feel worse for those that are left behind than those that have died. And I think a lot of Palestinians would say the exact same thing. Mm. Why? Because our Prophet told us that that the shaheed would not want to come back to this life for anything except to give their life once again for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's kind of, if you don't understand shahada, mm-hmm. you don't get it. But 
Allah has decreed a certain amount of shuhada mm. to come out of this. And that's a gift to those shuhada. Allah has decreed a certain reward. And subhanAllah, this is one, something I took from uh, someone who I believe is a wali of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we, and we pray that we get to meet him one day and be with him in paradise. Uh, the, the, the grandfather of Ruh al-Ruh, the soul of my soul, Abu Diya Khalid, may Allah bless him, was going around and comforting people despite losing the most precious people in the world to him. And he told the girl who lost her leg, your leg is already in Jannah. Your, le- your leg preceded you to paradise. And that just led me to a whole khutbah, a whole, a whole digging through the text to see if there was any prophetic equivalent. And I, and I found a few that were similar to that. Like your leg has preceded you to Jannah. You know, so subhanAllah, Allah Azzawajal has decreed certain people to enter Jannah, certain people to be tested. This is the means by which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala raises their maqam. Allah has decreed through this that the ummah gets a wake-up call that it really, really, really needed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also has decreed for the oppressors just like he allows the shaytan himself some respite so that he can think that he's there. Every oppressor reaches a point where they look around and they say, I think I'm good. Where they 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 say the most arrogant and outlandish things and they no longer believe they can be held accountable. Yeah. And it's at that moment, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows the oppressor to grow in their oppression until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala snatches them and Allah will never let them go until that oppressor becomes a tiny ant on the day of judgment that people step on and that has to stand in front of the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with all of their victims present. What a mighty scene that's going to be when all the Palestinians line up mm. on the day of judgment against every single one of the Israeli tyrants, every prime minister, every IDF soldier, every everyone who enabled their oppression when they stand and we all bear witness. We're all called to the courtroom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We say, remember when Wa'al Dahdu's family was killed. We, were, we saw it. Yeah, Allah punished that person on behalf of Wa'al. We remember this. Allah has a grand scheme at play. We don't know it. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses whether to snatch right away or whether to delay. And that's his wisdom. Hmm. Uh, you know, the day of judgment, subhanAllah, this is actually how I started that lecture. Yeah. Just shows you because there's a whole thing of Allah mocks them. They think that they're mocking Allah. Allah mocks them. Hmm. The last episode that happens with oppressors on this earth are when Ya'juj and Ma'juj throw their arrows into the sky. And what does Allah do? Allah doesn't just kill them. Allah first sends some blood down with their arrows hmm. so that they can celebrate. Then Allah takes them. Then Allah sends a little a little parasite that kills them all. Right? SubhanAllah to show them how little they actually are. A minute ago, these, these people thought that they had conquered the world and that they killed all of the inhabitants of the earth and the heavens. Hmm. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mocked them and let them feel that way for a moment. And then Allah sends a little worm and kills them all in an instant to show them their reality. This is the sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with his khalq, with his creation. And you won't find, you know, it's interesting. It's like there are two verses. Surah Al-Rum, when Allah talks about the victory, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, This is the promise of Allah. Allah does not break his promise. Allah made you a promise, he's not going to break it. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Isra, 
when he promises the Prophet that those who seek to run him out of the land would actually be driven out of it. They won't be, they won't be spared except for a few moments. And the people that drove the Prophet out of Mecca, they went out to fight him in Badr and they were killed in Badr, whereas the Prophet came back victorious to Mecca. This is the Sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You will not find any change in the Sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when it comes to the righteous. Victory is for the believers. It is aqidah, it is creed. Victory is for the believers. The Muslims will be victorious. The Palestinians will be victorious. This will happen. The only question is whether it will happen in my lifetime, but I don't need it to happen in my lifetime to believe in the promise of Allah and whether Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will count me on the right side of history. That's all. That I, that's, that's all. Everything else is assured already. And we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to be on the right side of this and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continue to show us the miracles in our brothers and sisters who are an ayah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They are an ayah. They are a source of inspiration. They're a miracle from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we can draw from their strength and persevere the way that they're persevering. Now today I want to focus on the <clears throat> issue of decline and whether we are, we are in irreversible decline. Do you feel that um, an Islamic golden age is still possible for this ummah? It's inevitable. <laughs> it's an inevitable. Uh, if anything, the golden age of Isa remains. The golden age of Jesus, peace be upon him, remains, right, with, mm-hmm. with the ummah. And the Prophet ﷺ, look, he said, how can... How can Allah disgrace an ummah? The first of it is Muhammad and the last of it is Isa yeah. Allah would not disgrace an ummah. The first of it is Muhammad and the last of it is Isa Between that, you have a bunch of ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and tilkal ayyam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says it's the, the days. It switches. One day you're up, one day you're down. One day you're up, one day you're down. SubhanAllah, the same way that the individual's life when the Prophet ﷺ described our lives, he drew a box, the lifeline of Al-Insan, the lifeline of each and every single one of us. He drew a box and then he drew that line right through it, mm-hmm. and then he drew little vertical lines uh, with the horizontal line. Yeah. And he said, this is your life. This is who you are. Those are your hopes, that line that goes through the box. And each one of these vertical lines are the tests that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends. Yeah. Sometimes they snatch you, sometimes they miss you. That is the lifeline of the ummah too. And every single part of the ummah, every single community, you escape one fitna, but you're going to be tested in some other way. Yeah. Because Do people think they say we believe and, they, and, and they're not going to be tested? It's very interesting in the Quran, Surah Al-Ankabut comes after Surah Al-Rum, which is the victory. And Allah says, but don't think you get there just like that. You don't just say, we believe, and then you get that victory. So we're not in irreversible decline. We are certainly um, at a low point. But there were points before that were lower than this point. Really? I mean, if you lived within a thousand, I mean, a hundred years, no Hajj. Yeah. Within that same century, no Jerusalem. If I told you Mecca has fallen, Al-Quds has fallen, and there was an attempt on confiscating the Prophet ﷺ from the Crusaders, confiscating his body to make an example out of his body. Mecca, Medina, Jerusalem. If I told you this all happened, 
if you're sitting at home at that point, if you're living in that moment, you're thinking it's only a matter of time. What's left? Even the Sahaba, subhanAllah, I don't think we can ever properly appreciate how difficult on the hearts of the companions it was to see Sahaba fighting each other. Mm. Like we came together for the Prophet we fought the most difficult of battles to see Sahaba on the side of in battle saying Allahu Akbar and fighting each other. Mm. That fitna, many people thought this is it. Yeah. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought us out of that. And so with hardship comes ease. There are self-inflicted wounds, and those are the ones we have to pay attention to, much like when we talk about the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Tansurullah Surkum, why you thabbit aqdamakum, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not give just give you victory should you support the cause of Allah. Allah will make your feet firm, He'll give you steadfastness. Um, Allah does not change the condition of people until they change the condition of themselves. So there's the prescriptive uh you know, diagnosis that's based upon plenty of self-reflection, introspection, and communal reflection yeah. that produces something good. But when it comes to difficulty, when difficulty is imposed upon us by an enemy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, at that point you find that the Prophet always used those moments to inspire the greatest hope. The Prophet ﷺ was not just sitting in Mazda Nabawi one day and it was Eid and everyone was happy and then a light shined and the Prophet ﷺ said, I see Yemen, I see Jerusalem, I see Asham. He saw it in the Khandaq, in the trench. Mm. Persia, Yemen, Asham, all these places. Mm. When they were covered in dirt and starving and hadn't had anything to eat yeah. and they were facing a genocide in Medina, that's when Allah shows the Prophet ﷺ yeah. the light of the world. Islam spreading throughout the world. Not when the Prophet was comfortable sitting in the masjid. The Prophet was not sitting with Suraq ibn Malik and you know everything was going great. And then he tells him, by the way, one day you're going to hold the bracelets of Kisra, the most powerful man in the world. He said that to him when he was the least powerful man in the world. He's a fugitive on the run and he's telling the guy that, ca- that caught him, the bounty hunter, mm. that you're going to one day have the treasures of the most powerful man in the world. So the Prophet always inspires and inspired with the greatest hope in the greatest moments of distress and, and, and despair. Now, when we are hurting ourselves, that's when the messaging has to be in accordance with that. And sometimes it's, it's, it's both at the same time. It's concurrent, right? So yeah. you have the message to those that have turned their backs on the Palestinians, turned their backs on Ahl Ghazza. Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on you for turning your back on Ahl Ghazza. Mm. Allah will hold you accountable. And then you have the same message to Ahl Ghazza, which is, man They are not deterred by those who betrayed them. So the message to those who have been betrayed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will replace, replace those who have betrayed you with someone better than them. Yeah. May Allah Azza make us amongst them. Yeah. And the message to those who have betrayed, shame on you, your day is coming. Ittaqillah, fear Allah with your brothers in Gaza. Fear Allah with those women and children in Gaza. So it's the, it's the same time. Mm-hmm. It's who you're talking to and what you're trying to inspire. But at the end of the day, is it irreversible decline? No. We have plenty of ayat, plenty of ahadith 
the way the world has been structured, yeah. the way that the timeline of humanity has been given to us by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We don't know when the day of judgment comes, but we know that before that there's victory for this ummah. We don't know when Jerusalem is established once again, but the Prophet sent a mention of the signs of the day of judgment or Umran Ubayt al Maqdis, the establishment once again of the Holy Land. We don't know when, but we know it will happen, yeah. right? Yeah. And so since we haven't seen that happen uh, just yet, then there's a bushra from the Prophet وسلم, a glad tiding from the Messenger of Allah The question is, how do we connect that to our seemingly small actions in the grand, in the grand scheme of things? Well, let me pick up on that point. So you've answered the question that you know, I asked at the very beginning of the show, are we a, a Rome or a China? <clears throat> Rome is in what I suppose we would call irreversible decline. It's now right. a middling economy, a middling state, whereas China went through a period of what they called humiliation and now bounced back and and today are, are trying to make a bid for superpower status in the world. Uh, from your perspective then, the Islamic texts all point to the direction that uh, one day, inshallah ta'ala, a revival will take place and Islam and Muslims will be uh, at a at a very high ebb instead of the low ebb that we're at at the moment. Um, do you feel that um, that um, possibility can be entertained in our lifetime? So I think it goes back to first and foremost how you define success. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, wa wa in kuntum Do not lose heart. Do not grieve. Yeah. And you are the exalted ones should you be believers. Yeah. Part of that reading is that if you retain your iman, you are exalted, no matter what has happened to you. Yes. Because to some people, success, just as it is on an individual level, is defined in a very material way. Right. The golden age of the ummah is that you have manufacturing and great, you know, great infrastructure and economic power and political power. Mm. But if that corresponds to a decline in religiosity, Right. And the people distancing themselves from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's failure. Mm. That's not success. That's right. failure. Yeah. It's through the darkest moments that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala builds the best people. Yeah. It's like had the Prophet given or been given Mecca right away, yeah. he wouldn't have had the people that were built that went on to become our heroes, but also have an entire Islamic legacy and built upon their these, shoulders. These personalities being forged through this crisis we're seeing and, and the many crises that we're seeing. The people of Gaza would not be the people of Gaza without the circumstances of Gaza. Yeah. Allah yeah. chose them for something very special. But with what he chose them for, there's a lot of difficulty. Yeah. But through them, not only is their promise but the ummah has a reminder. I don't want the Muslim world to have incredible skylines and political power if that means, you know, the advent of godlessness and atheism and, you know, the worship of secularism and in, in every sense of the word yeah. taking over the Muslim world. I don't want it then. Mm -hmm. That's not success. That's failure. Yeah. So success is when you have the content of character and faith that is found in the people of Gaza that go on to then be given victory and build once again. And there has to be a purge and a renewal process. This is the sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they mention, right? There has to be a purge and a process of renewal, a purge and a process of renewal. With that purge, 
the right people are given victory. And through them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spreads so much to the world. And then there's another period until it comes to the very end. Mm. So, uh, you know, when people say, you know, what's taking so long? Look, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has timed this perfectly. Yeah. And there are personalities that have developed. And perhaps through those individual characters, the character of the ummah changes. Because you know what? There are people that are sitting in some of these so-called developed countries that are opening casinos and partying like there's no tomorrow. And yeah. in the midst of the devastation of the people of Gaza, hosting the most extravagant of firework shows and, you know, projecting an image of progress. There are people in those very societies that are saying, this isn't it. There are Muslims that are sitting at home and watching TV in those societies and going, this is not it. This is not what we're meant for. This isn't what our ummah is. So what made our ummah special was that it was the right types of people that were producing what was beneficial to mankind. Mm. But we don't have the right types of people until we go through the necessary tribulations to generate the right types of people. And that's true even for us. Look, I think if you ask any single one of us, this Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Have your priorities shifted? I'm a Palestinian, subhanAllah. My people... And, and, and I, I want to clarify here, my people, anyone who embraces the cause of Palestine, any member of this ummah, anyone who loves khayr for the people and prays for them and is vested in their victory is a Palestinian when I say that, right? I don't, I don't separate this based upon nationality. But the things that would have made me sad, the things that I would have been focused on, the things that my priorities as an individual completely shifted on October 7th. Does that mean that I didn't care about Palestine before that? No, of course I cared about Palestine. Yeah. We were protesting in 2021 about Gaza, right? And, the, and, and there's been organizing, ongoing work, you know, especially in, in the wake of the Abraham Accords to try to diffuse the impact of normalization, East and West. But this changed everything. And I think a lot of people have woken up to a new reality. It's those types of hearts that build a truly Islamic civilization. It's not an empty civilization with the decor, with the embellishment of Islam, where the hearts are hardened, that success is found. And so I am excited about the rebuilding of Gaza. You know, subhanAllah, I was talking to someone in Gaza um, two days ago, and he told me, uh, he gave this example. This guy... Granted, this man hasn't had anything to eat for two days. He was telling me, I haven't put anything in my stomach for two days. Mm. Hunger drives a person insane. Yeah. And, you know, he was talking about some of the bribery that's happening at the border of Egypt. It's a dirty secret, by the way, that there's bribery. There's a, a legal way to get out, and then there's bribery. Mm. 
but the bank accounts are all shut down. Yeah. But you can bribe certain officials at Rafah and you can get through. And he said, uh, you know, Wallahi, if the only thing I have in my house that's left is a bathroom, mm. I'm going to go back and I'm going to sit on my toilet mm. until I meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because Allah Azawajal called us to be here. We're not going anywhere. So if we move across the border, we get some temporary help, whatever, we're not giving up. I'm looking forward to the beauty of Gaza rebuilt, inshallah ta'ala. Palestine as a whole, of course, because we can't rest just with Gaza. They want to separate Gaza from Palestine, from sure. the cause of Palestine as a whole. Yeah. But when Gaza's buildings are rebuilt, the types of hearts, the types of resilience and character and iman and yaqeen that you will find in those people yeah. will be even greater than it was before, bi'idhnillahi ta'ala. So that's sort of, I think, a, a microcosm of what we want to see happen in the broader ummah. Hopefully awakened hearts build something truly Islamic, not just materially uh, successful, not just embellished with Islam, but something truly Islamic that comes from Islamic values and that speaks to you know, the causes of the ummah and benefiting humanity as a whole. How do we know we're doing enough for Gaza? How do we? I come across many Muslims and I ask that question to myself you know, on a daily basis, when we see the horrific scenes taking place in Gaza, we do conclude that maybe we're just not doing enough and, and maybe the fault is partly ours for not raising Gaza before the 7th of October, but also, um, you know, our mm. lives are still um, um, you know, dominated by things that are not our ummah. Um, so that guilt exists in all of us, uh, how do we deal with that guilt? Do you want an honest answer or you want a preacher's answer? I want your honest answer. We're not doing enough. Really? We're not doing enough. No one's doing enough. Mm. You know, when the Prophet used to seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he sought forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for deficiency. Yeah. I feel utterly ashamed. If a thousand people came to me and said, you're doing so much for Palestine, Inside my head, I say, you know they're lying. We're not doing enough. And we have to feel that sense of deficiency. Mm. And we seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from being completely incapacitated. And we seek forgiveness. You know the dua, Allah man ya'udhu bika min al-ajzi wal-kasab. This is a dua that you are supposed to say morning and evening. Allah man ya'udhu bika min al-ajzi wal-kasab. Allah ya'udhu bika min al-jubni wal-bukhud. Allah ya'udhu bika... Um, min, uh, subhanallah. Oh Allah, I seek refuge in you from inability and laziness. The difference between ajz and kasal, um, according to many of the scholars, is that ajz is that you want to, but you can't. Kasal is that you can, but you don't want to. So incapable but you really want to be more capable. Kasr is capable, but you don't have the motivation. I think that we, you know, go between those two things constantly, right? Sometimes we attribute kasr to ajz and vice versa. Sometimes we're capable and we're not doing enough. Mm. But I'm utterly ashamed of myself. I don't, I don't feel proud. I don't feel like I'm doing enough. I don't think any of us should feel like we're doing enough because we're not. You know, some people didn't like, and this is the human part, and subhanAllah, you know, I think we have to understand that the people of Gaza are also of different types. 
there's no no place where everyone's the same. Yes. As a whole, they're inspirational. Uh, as a whole, obviously, deeply religious. But sometimes some of the messages that come out that are actually really angry yeah. at the world. Yeah, We're sick of being your zoo. We're sick of being your entertainment. Yeah. We're sick of being your motivational, feel good about yourself clip on YouTube. We're starving. We're being slaughtered. Wake up. Do more. Um, I'm haunted by their screams. Mm. Wallahi, I'm haunted by their screams. I'm absolutely mortified by their screams. Because Allah will ask me, did you do enough? I don't know if I've done enough, but I think the answer is no. And I think each one of us should feel like the answer is no, but not no to where, well, let me not do anything then. Because something is better than nothing, but how do I make that something better? Yeah. And you do that as a Muslim by making sure that you have your private acts of worship and that you stay committed to the cause when other people turn away. You do that by always reassessing your strategy. You do that by not making the cause about you. Sometimes the protests become group therapy. Mm. You know, people just go out and, all right, you know, we shouted out and vented out all of our energy and frustration. Yeah. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about them. It's about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the answer is no, we're not doing enough. We got to do more. Yeah. We have to do more. Sometimes we don't know what that more is, but we have to be willing to do that more. That's where the sincerity of intention comes in. You know, when we talk about sidq with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when we talk about being truthful with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, yeah. there were people that came to the Prophet and said, if Allah gave me the opportunity, I would do this. They meant it. Mm. Be truthful with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah will be truthful with you. Mm. Don't throw statements like that with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, someone says, if only I could do this and if only I could do that. And if only, be careful, Allah might test you with that statement. You better mean it. Your heart better mean it. You better, you better mean it when you say that I will do everything I possibly can to end this atrocity. Mm. I'll do everything I possibly can to see Masjid Aqsa freed. You know, subhanAllah, uh, Dr. Raymond Anjum and I uh, co-authored an article. <laughs> and I have to say that he wrote the majority of it, so may Allah bless him. Mm-hmm. About Palestinian liberation and the, the, the imperative of the liberation of Palestine and not being it. <laughs> right, being it turned into a peace treaty. What peace are you talking about when our people live like this? Like, what peace are you talking about living under occupation and apartheid? I don't want to make peace with people that have restricted every single notion of existence and human life mm. and have completely desecrated Masjid al-Aqsa. I want justice. Stop, stop talking about peace and making treaties. And who are these people to make treaties on our behalf mm. between the Arabs and Israel? Your nations were not fighting Israel in the first place, right? These Muslim nations that are signing the Abraham Accords and getting on these arms deals. And so we wrote this article about the imperative of looking at Palestine differently and the imperative of committing yourself to its liberation we're not doing enough but inshallah ta'ala you know i hope that we'll have an excuse before allah because i'm mortified by being questioned about these people what's our answer you know like we've heard things we've seen things that we've never heard and seen before what's our answer before allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so I think you start from that place. How do you how do you have slipq in your niya? How do you have truthfulness in your intention? You imagine that conversation with Allah playing out in front of you. And 
if I think it's a good enough answer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then it's a good enough effort. If I, if I don't, and right now I don't, and I think a lot of people feel like I, they don't, do more and keep doing more. Yeah. The feeling of deficiency should not lend itself to despair. It should lend itself to a further dedication because you don't know which effort's going to unlock something great. You know, this young girl, Lama Al-Jamus, she's adorable. I have messages with her. I was, I was, it was like, um, you know, when she started sending voice notes on Instagram, it was like the happiest, like, I feel like I'm talking to my own daughter. Yeah. Well, if I could hug her, I would. You know, a nine-year-old girl that puts on a press vest and starts shadowing Wada Dahdouh and yes. going around and interviewing people in Gaza. She's nine years old, man, nine years old. Mm. And she feels called to this. That's a hero. That's a, that's a superhero, subhanAllah. And she's adorable. She's beautiful. Um, you know, these people are finding something. <laughs> They're finding ways. Half of the people that are journalists in Gaza became journalists overnight. Right? They're finding ways to, to keep the story alive, keep the hope alive. Even when they're showing us the worst of what's happening to the people of Gaza, they're still keeping the hope alive. Yeah. Because the fact that they're still going means that they still have hope. So may Allah forgive us. Ameen. And we seek refuge in Allah from an ajwa kasab, yeah. from wanting to do and not being able to do, or from being able to do and not wanting enough to do. Can I ask you about the Hukum Shari regarding boycotts? Mm-hmm. So at the moment, uh, the issue of boycott is, of course, a very big theme in, in the Muslim Ummah. But it seems that the list of things we should boycott are, are ever-growing. And, and uh, for many people, there is this boycott fatigue that's, um, that's um, you know, slowly coming in. Now, yeah. from a Hukum Shari perspective, um, is it haram? Uh, for Muslims to engage with an Israeli business, uh, or what is the hukum shari regarding um, you know mm. boycotting, say, an American product if that American company uh, you know support the occupation, for example, or if a British company supports the occupation, or it's a defense company that may have an arm, which is I don't know a restaurant arm, whatever it may be. Um, uh, <clears throat> just untangle that in my mind in terms of the shari perspective. Well, thank you for not asking if boycotts are haram. Mm-hmm. Alhamdulillah. So I thought you were going there. So no. I'm glad you're not going there. Alhamdulillah. So we've established that part. Yes. You know, yeah. That um, it's in fact well grounded in the sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu the practice of the companions and, and a part of the ethos of the Salaf, right? The way of the Salaf that, you know, the, the very famous narration of uh, Imam Ahmed, rahimahullah, the prison guard, asking him if he's from uh, those who aid the oppressor. And Imam Ahmed said, no, you're one of the oppressors. The one who makes your food and cuts your hair is aiding an oppressor. Yeah. You are an oppressor, right? Uh, or Sufyan Thodi to the tailor of, of a tyrant um, saying that you're, you're an oppressor. Mm. There are different levels to this. Um, I think it's important for people to understand that using the word haram carries certain implications yeah. to it. And so to meet the threshold of haram as a hukum is is more difficult than to say this is shameful and this should not be done. This is contrary to Islamic values and it's bad strategy, it's bad ethics, and we have to do better um, as a community. I'll address the first thing, you know, first, which is boycott fatigue. Yeah, I remember being overseas when the first boycott of Starbucks happened, I want to say 
2004. Mm. And that didn't last very long. No. Right? Like I remember there was this huge, you know, uproar within a week and then it was it seemed to really be gone and then only like serious practicing Muslims said no, we're not going to do it. Or it was actually earlier in 2004, it might have been 2002. Yeah. Uh, that that boycott happened because of something that Schultz did. Um towards Israel. Mm. There's a difference between the country, the individual, mm. anyone that has a company, anyone that is doing business knowingly with a company that is profiting from our oppression. I mean, again, I'm not going to use the word sinful, mm. but I certainly would not put the person who buys a can of Coke in the same category as someone who's doing business, who's got investments, who's knowingly got partners that are profiting from our oppression. So putting pressure on on those people is very important. And by the way, this is strategically very important for us to find who the venture capitalists are, who the investors are. Some of them in the Muslim world have no idea what their partners do with their money and, the, and, and their Western counterparts do with their money. Yeah. I'm just putting it out there that a great strategy would be to use the tools at our disposal to find out who these partners are, investors are, and to start pressuring them yeah. to cut off ties with their Western counterparts that are doing business knowingly, and unfortunately, even in the East as well, yeah. uh, some of some of these um, investments are taking place. There's a difference between, um, you know, doing business with someone who's sympathetic to Israel and someone who's got plants and, you know, in occupied territory. Mm. So there are all types of layers here, right? Um, for the individual Muslim, it's important to. Note the difference between targeted boycotts, pressure boycotts, yeah. for the purpose of boycott fatigue. Some people didn't like when I made that distinction, but there's a reason why that distinction is made even within the BDS movement. Mm. Because fatigue is a real thing. If you are capable of shunning every single product, right, no matter where they fall on the degree of severity, yeah. you will be rewarded for that. So I can't say you'll be sinful. Yeah. For doing the opposite, but I can say you'll be rewarded, inshallah ta'ala, for that with the right intention right. if you're able to avoid it all. And I love that my kids ask the question every time they see a can of, of, of soda mm. or they see a restaurant, Baba, are they on the boycott list? Mm. Because they're committed to it as well. That's ingraining something in, in their minds. And by the way, that shouldn't just be done with Israel, but we're talking about also the Uyghurs and other forms of oppression. Ethical consumerism is a thing, right? And that's part of how you instill proper uh, notions of Islamic justice in your children, right? right. So you'll be rewarded for that, inshallah ta'ala. But targeted boycotts obviously target, um, you know, for a specific time period, um, certain companies, uh, and usually um, the most egregious uh, violators, right, of, of the Palestinian people's rights that are doing business in, in certain ways. And they channel community momentum and they have real effects, real implications. Starbucks might not even be the biggest violator, right? Mm. But Starbucks is reeling right now. So what that what message that sends to other companies is if a company like Starbucks can face adverse effects because of the Muslim community and people of conscience as a whole boycotting, then what does that mean for us? So you want to send a message to other companies as well. And we've seen some companies pull back, like Puma and stuff like that, pull back some of their investments in Israeli settlements. So the difference between the Ami, uh, the, the Awam, the, the the masses, is different from a person who has a, a greater degree of involvement where, there, where the, the consequences are certainly heavier, mm -hmm. financial consequences, trade, investments, uh, stocks, academic institutions. Mm -hmm. With the BDS movement, you know, 
the divestment and sanctions piece is equally as important, if not more important, if we Explain can put pressure. Divestment, but yeah. divestment is obviously when you look at academic institutions that have divested from any Israeli firms or any any companies that do business uh, in occupied territory. Yes. Um, academic institutions, companies. Uh, you know what's sad? The Presbyterian Church divested. Really? And that's not the sad part. We're the Muslim organizations that have all committed to the BDS movement, right? Um, even the United Methodists, even though they have their certain, you know, schism right now that's happening, mm. but you know, they've partially divested as well. Uh, so it's important for, I think, all Muslim organizations, especially in the United States, and, and I make this challenge to U.S. Muslim organizations, uh, open call on Muslim organizations in the United States, and I'm sure there's a counterpart here and in different countries. If we all sign on to a commitment to, to the BDS movement, yeah. they can't target us all. But what they do is, what governments will do is, especially with all of these more intrusive laws coming out, is they'll pit good Muslim against bad Muslim. Mm. If they find that split that they can exploit, you better believe that they will. So unless all of us come together and commit ourselves to BDS, then we're always going to have that schism and it's going to be exploited. And you know what? Those that don't sign on to it, let them lose all credibility in the Muslim community. Let them lose credibility with all voices of justice. So when they normalize, they would have already been outed at that point, mm -hmm. right? So there has to be a collective commitment mm -hmm. to the BDS movement, I think, from the Muslim community. The sanctions element also is important because you know what? We have to explore ways to put pressure on Muslim countries yeah. to sanction Israel. Mm -hmm. You know, Subhanallah, one of the first people to, 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 to reach out and I had the opportunity to, to work with and, and speak to was Ian Balera, Span, Spain's justice minister yeah. about a criminal case. Right. And, uh, you know, in, in, in obviously the broader uh, sense in terms of bringing accountability to Israel's actions. You see South Africa filed the case. Yeah. I'm going to give you a, a hopeful example and people that we need in our ummah right now. Yeah. Abu Bakr Tambedu who was the justice minister of the Gambia, who was the only man that was willing to prosecute Myanmar yeah. Yeah. in the International Criminal Court mm. for its crimes against humanity with its treatment of the Rohingya. The small Muslim country, the justice minister, took it as a personal, as a personal issue because he went to Bangladesh and he saw the way that the Rohingya were. He went into Myanmar and he said, this reminded him of Rwanda because he was a lawyer, a justice lawyer, in Rwanda, we need more Abu Bakr Tambedus. We need more people to put pressure within their governments, to put pressure on governments, on countries, mm. to sanction Israel. I was very, you know, pleased. For example, Dr. Anwar Ibrahim didn't let a, an Israeli ship, uh, you know, uh, dock in any of its territory. Good, small step, tiny step. We need more of that. That needs to be the mindset of these governments, of these Muslim countries. Cut the oil lines, cut the gas lines, not just with Israel, but with the United States as well. Mm. Put some pressure. Yeah. And unfortunately, in many of these countries, their own people can't say it. So we have to create somehow strategically enough pressure for those sanctions to be legitimate enough to where it becomes too costly to commit genocide. I think that we have to start thinking about disruption. The weapons manufacturers. Uh, it seems like you in the UK, you've you've surpassed us in this regard, mm -hmm. right? And it's something that I have been discussing with many colleagues 
about not just the Islamic nature of it, but how viable it is um, for Muslims to start partaking in meaningful demonstrations to actually start blocking yeah. or disrupting some of the weapons shipments uh, to Israel. This is where we all kind of, it's all hands on deck. And in the case of the boycott of those ships, it's literally all hands on deck, right? We all have to find our way to make this work, inshallah ta'ala. That's what it means to say, yeah, Allah, I really tried my best. So we all have to kind of look deeply within and, and try to strategize, inshallah, in this regard. Can I ask you about American Muslims and, and their role in uh, placing Gaza and other Muslim causes at the center of their interests? I mean, there is often an accusation made by outsiders that American Muslims tend to look inwards and think about their own interests and forget about the ummah at large, the ummatic idea that at the top of our hierarchy of, of interest is really you know, our ummah and and where our ummah is uh, in terms of American foreign policy, for example, and, and you know, the, the impact American foreign policy is having upon uh, the Muslim world. Do you see that changing? Do you see Muslims in America, if we were to agree with this premise, you may disagree with it, but if, if we were to say that, you know, uh, many Muslims in America have not prioritized the Rohingyas or the Uyghurs or the Gazans or the Palestinians. Is that changing as a result of this crisis and, and maybe previous crises? So let me start not by deflecting, hmm. but by saying that I think that if we're going to be honest, we have a lot of inconsistency to go around with this ummah. Some of the most forgotten people right now in our ummah are our Syrian brothers and sisters. Yeah. So if we're going to talk about inconsistencies, there's a lot of inconsistency to go around. The people that committed the crimes against our brothers and sisters in Syria are not our allies. We don't need them. Um, people that deny the Bosnian genocide or whatever it is, the Uyghur, we don't need them. So there's a lot of inconsistency and there's a lot of, well, this cause right now is, is, is different. I'm a Palestinian. I love my people. I love, I, I love Al-Aqsa. I want to see Palestine free, but I'm not willing to, I'm not willing to swallow that inconsistency. Mm. Uh, so we have to be willing to just say there's a there's a level of inconsistency yeah, all around, everywhere. right? And yeah. and and it is a problem that the ummah has as a whole, right? I Where right. we yeah. can all look inwards and say, well, we've got to prioritize our well-being here. I think there's a lot of that in the Muslim world. Yeah, you know, at what point does the Palestinian cause in particular become too costly? In the United States, um, with American Muslims, I definitely think there's an element of that. So, mm -hmm. the American Muslim exceptionalism to where our domestic choices, which have foreign consequences, should not be taken into consideration because of certain political mobility or the promise of representation. Mm -hmm. If we have 20 Muslims in Congress, 30 Muslims in Congress, I think you've had a similar situation here in the United Kingdom. I'm not entirely literate when it comes to your politics here, but if you get a Muslim in there, and they can't speak the truth, we don't want them there. Yeah. I, I actually don't want you there. Yeah. Don't talk to me about wisdom. And don't, Wisdom is in the way you say things. Wisdom is maybe the course of action that you're going to take, and there, there, there's a long game, and I can understand all of that. Yeah. But it stops when you're not even able to express clearly truth from falsehood. That's where it stops. That's where any claim to benefit stops in political success, mm -hmm. right? And that's not just true for the Palestinian cause, that's true in general. Yeah. So I think American Muslims are guilty, like many, many 
factions of the ummah, yeah. of maybe a little bit of uh, uh, self-preservation, self-interest, and not thinking about the broader ummah. I do think that Palestine has woken many up mm. uh, to that reality, to where hopefully now we see ourselves as part of the ummah as a whole, and no longer exceptionalize ourselves, nor do we make the claim and you know that that look Palestine's too much of a burden right now. We just need to get our people through. And I can't say this because if I say this, then I'm not going to be able to win this position. Then I don't want you to win your position. Please don't run for that position. Please stay out of it. I'd rather the non-Muslim that I don't agree with 90% of the time that can be persuaded by whatever means, right, to say what needs to be said on this issue and not have to bear the baggage of their other 90% than have you there. If you're just going to be silent and the only gift that I get is your representation, forget about it. We don't want it, right? So I think that there's an opportunity for introspection here, inshallah ta'ala, within the American Muslim community, within the British Muslim community, within other pockets of the Muslim world to say, listen, we have to consider the impact of our decisions on our broader ummah. We're part of an ummah. We never sacrifice that. We're still American in that we care for our American neighbors. We care for the places that we live. We care for our neighbors, our colleagues. We want to bring goodness to everywhere that we are. That's true. We're still American in that we want to stop the harm that America is causing to the rest of the world because, you know, uh, true welfare, true nasiha means that you you hold things in. So, you know, la uridu illa aslaha. I want to help you stop harming, you know. So, you know, I'm talking to my neighbor, I'm talking to this person. You know, look, I'm not anti-American because I'm trying to stop the great harm that the American government is causing to the rest of the world. You should join me in this cause. And by the way, your tax dollars are being used to kill innocent people overseas that happen to be my people. But you should also be outraged on, on the basic moral premise of that, as well as, you know, the fact that you can't feed your kids anymore, right? right. You don't have any social welfare, right? So it's... Yeah. It's even like Americans not not exceptionalizing themselves as a whole to the detriment of the rest of the world. So, of course, American Muslims as well mm. are guilty of that self-preservation. And we have to break out of that. And inshallah, I think this is an opportunity for us to do so. I mean, how effective do you think the Muslims could be in America? Maybe there are six million Muslims in America or possibly more. I, I may have got that figure wrong. But how can, um, can Muslims be really effective there in changing and uh, using their collective economic and political leverage to change American foreign policy for the good? I think we have to try. Hmm. How effective in the short term? Allah knows best. But we have to try. I can tell you that um, our overall you know, protests, our pressure has been working. It's, if anything, I mean, look, you, you even look at the rifts within... Uh, Democrats. These congressional, not just the Democrats, but yeah. like congressional staffers walking out on there. Th this is unprecedented. White House yeah. staffers walking out, you know, faces covered, course, but over a yeah. hundred of them. Yeah. Like we're disgusted by what's happening on the inside. The rifts are real and our driving the public narrative. Yeah. Despite the, you know, Israeli propaganda machine on steroids is significant to causing that shift. What Alhamdulillah. So there is some effectiveness that's coming out from the organizing. Clearly, the strategy is working in some ways. Yeah. Um, influencing politicians. Politics is a dirty game. Mm. I, I don't know. You know, there, there has been talk and um, 
you know, it seems like everyone's trying to form a Muslim pack now, right? Yeah. In 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 um, contradiction to APAC, I think some of those could work, yeah. um, because you you actually become effective in politics by penalizing politicians more than voting them in. Uh, so penalizing them for so the, the abandoned Biden uh, project. How how's that how's that going? I mean, I support that as one piece of the puzzle. I, I lend yeah. my support to that altogether yeah. because uh, Democrats have to know people. People in power have to know that you cannot undertake this type of a destructive course of action yeah. and still get the Muslim vote and not be penalized. I hope that every single politician that turned their back on the Muslim community is sitting at home in December watching TV and saying, we wish we would have done something differently. Yeah. We wish we would have listened. So we have to penalize. We absolutely have to penalize uh, these candidates. That's one piece of the puzzle. Right, voting power. There's the pack power, but you know who's pack and who's running the pack and what's their actual agenda, right? Um, what does collective power look like? How much? How many resources have to be dedicated to the pack for it to be successful? So there's some that look promising. There's some that don't look so promising. I've seen I've seen several put in front of me. I try to support everything good that's in front of me. Yeah. Um, you know, inshallah, I hope that that we're able to as a community and we're going to make mistakes hmm. along the way, but I hope that we're able to as a community at least keep on clawing until we get to uh, some good mechanisms that factor into a broader strategy of, of actually holding our full political weight as a Muslim community in the United States. It's going to take, there's some trial and error that's going to exist there, yeah. uh, but we have to learn from the lessons of the past. Now that's part of what growth means is that looking back and saying, okay, well, this is where we messed up as a community. This approach did not work. Let's, ditch it and let's uh refocus as a community our energy here our energy there while continuously being guided by um the principles um that that make us muslim in the first place i've come across many muslims who are quite pessimistic uh as a result of what's happened in in gaza and they feel that things are really going from you know bad to worse how do we prevent, from an iman perspective, how do we prevent ourselves from falling into this spiral of pessimism that may entrap us? Well, it's actually interesting, subhanAllah. It's one of the first things that I, I, I noted. And, and I tell people this, by the way, that if you read the Quran and the seerah now, it's going to give you insights that are far greater mm. because you're able to connect it in real time to the situation of the ummah, maybe in a way that you were not able to before. Yeah. Allah says to those who are dying, um, don't be afraid and don't grieve. Don't be afraid of what is to come, meaning they're entering into another realm. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid of what is to come and don't grieve over that which you have lost, that which you left behind. And Allah says to those who survived, don't lose heart and don't grieve. Mm -hmm. So don't grieve is, is a consistent message, meaning don't grieve over the losses too much to where they they paralyze you, but don't lose heart. Don't slow down. Don't lose heart. The Prophet said, Whoever says that the people are helpless is the most helpless of them all. And he said, is the one that's making them helpless. Look, if you sit around right now and you just talk about how terrible everything is and you trash every effort that's out there mm -hmm. and you start attacking other Muslims that are trying to do something right and you start attacking the efficiency of this and the efficacy of this and you know and you start saying well this is going to fail and this is going to fail and this is going to fail you might be right 80 percent of the time but you missed out on 20 percent of the ajr 20 percent of the good deeds here 
Allah has promised this ummah victory. It's just about when and how yeah. and who, right? And who, may Allah make us amongst them. Yeah. Who, right? Who's worthy of victory? Who's worthy of being granted that? May Allah make us amongst them. Allahumma ameen. So there is going to be a turning point, inshallah ta'ala. And believe it or not, I mean, people in Palestine are still hopeful. So hopelessness is not a trait of this ummah, no matter what the circumstances are. We've been in much worse times. We've come out of it. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continue to make us amongst the hopeful. But hurting, hurting is also sunnah. Yes. Feeling broken in front of Allah is also sunnah. So we hurt, we feel broken at times. We call upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the dua of al-masakeen. Ya Allah, we need you. La namliku illa dua. One of my favorite things to say in my dua is, Allahumma ya musabib al-asbab. La namliku lahum illa dua. Oh Allah, you're the one who causes all means. And the only means that we seem to have is dua. So do not let us return back empty-handed. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we, we entrust him with Gaza. We, we, we entrust Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with Gaza, its earth and its skies, its women and its children, its youth and its old ones. We entrust it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we just do our best. But uh, there will be a time inshallah ta'ala where uh, we will be praying in Masjid al-Aqsa and it will be free inshallah ta'ala. We will, we will have that time. It's just when, how and who. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us amongst those who are worthy of such a of such a victory. I mean, Dr. Omar Suleiman, Jazakallah khair. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website thinkinmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.